Welcome to episode 55 of Darling Why. How the hell are we at episode 55? Well, we did 54 episodes previously, and this is the one after that, which makes 55. Would you agree, Kate? Technically no, because we did other episodes too, so... They are non-canon! That's... They live in an alternative universe. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. It's part of the podcast multiverse. That's true. Everyone needs a multiverse these days. Yeah, everyone needs a multiverse. If if we've learned everything, anything from everything, everywhere, all at once... It's that we all need a multiverse. But there'll be more discussion on that movie at a later date. So today we are going to have a little chat about a film that I love very deeply. The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro, released in 2017, starring Sally Hawkins, Doug Jones, Michael Stuhlbarg, Richard Jenkins, Octavia Spencer, Michael Shannon. This fucking movie, right? Mm. If you... You may be aware of this film, you may be aware of it as, oh, isn't that the film where she fucks the fish? That is what I said about it for many, many times. You're like, let's watch The Shape of Water, and I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) And look, and look, look, does it happen? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, like... It's a very minor part of the movie. It's a very minor part of the movie, but I would like to confirm, the rumours are true, a woman makes sweet, sensual love to a fish man. That is a thing that occurs... It's not shown on the screen. Nope, it's heavily implied. It's heavily implied. It's described in a very amusing way. But that is like the tiniest fucking point about this movie. That is like... It was the famous thing that came out... thing that I absorbed via osmosis from the culture. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Joking aside. Joking aside. So, Shape of Water. um, The idea was conceived by Guillermo del Toro in about 2011. The script... He wrote the script himself with Vanessa Taylor... The film, as I said, was directed by him. It took quite a few years to sort of come together. Mm. It took a few years to come together. The film cost about $20 million to make. Now, you okay. might think that's a reasonable amount, but how it looks would imply that, like, basically, they were trying, his words, they were trying to shoot, like, a $60 million film on a $20 million yeah, budget. Yeah, I thought it would be a much higher budget, given no. what it looked, given the amount of just water stunts and shit they yeah. had to do. Um, yeah, no, twenty million feels very low, like in movie money. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In movie money, I think that's quite a low budget. To be fair, yeah. I was going to mention a few little further details before I go into the main body. So, what this film is really about—it's really like fundamentally—is a love story. Hmm. It's a love story. It's a romantic fantasy. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up because, as you know, my love. I don't usually like romance films. Neither do I. I usually fucking hate. I actively romance. dislike yeah. romance films most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I we don't watch them. Yeah. I, I. I genuinely think the vast majority of romance movies are fucking awful. Mm. And the ones that aren't, I just don't have the taste for. Yeah. But this film completely blindsided me. This film blindsided me. This film took me by. I've rarely been so surprised by a movie in my mm. life. And I don't mean surprised in the sense of, oh, look at these magical plot twists. I mean surprised by the sense of a film on paper I really have no business enjoying. Yeah. Becoming a film that has profoundly touched my soul. I think, like, because I think you saw it in the cinema, didn't you? I did. You? Yeah, I, I remember you told me you went to see it and I was actually kind of surprised. Yeah. Like, I didn't think that would be your vibe, you know? Yeah, and I was bawling my eyes out. Mm. I, I was openly sobbing throughout the entire movie. Partly because, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail later, the performance from Sally Hawkins in the lead is one of the, in my opinion, best performances I've ever seen. It's beautiful. Like, it's beautiful it's, performance. It, it, I'm just in awe of it. I am in awe of that woman's talent. We'll go into a bit more detail in a little bit. So, so as I say, Sally Hawkins is playing the lead. So, there are some very interesting stories about how Guillermo del Toro sort of explains the movie to these various actors and various people he wishes to cast in it. So, essentially, how he got Sally Hawkins involved was he sort of wrote the part of Eliza for her. Mm. He was a really fan of some of her other work, like her performance in Happy Go Lucky, by, directed by Mike Lee. That's really good. Um, she's also amazing in the, uh, in the from Fingersmith. I don't think I'd seen her in anything before I saw this. She's also in the Paddington had. movies. Which I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. She's the mum in the Paddington movies. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they they met at the Golden Globes one year and um, she said that he was very drunk and he swept me up in his arms and said, will you do my film? It's about a fish man and you fall in love. And I was saying, yes, I know. I've already said yes and we'll do whatever you want. 
Um, so the fish man himself, or as the script calls him, the amphibian man, mm. is played by frequent Del Toro collaborator, contortionist, actor with a background in mind, Doug Jones who those of you who've seen the Hellboy movies would remember as the physical embodiment of Abe Sapien. Though for reasons I can never quite remember, he doesn't voice him in the first movie he's dubbed over by David Hyde Pierce. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And yes, it's disappointing. At no point does he refer to um, Hellboy as Frasier or Dear Brother or mm. whatever. Or <laughs> but yeah, so Doug Jones is the amphibian man. That That's the official term. I'm not going to call him the fish guy. Or Sad. the fish. He's not a fish, he's a fish man. Yeah, he's an amphibian man. He's a hybrid man. He's an amphibian man. Yeah, he's an amphibian <laughs> man, that's fair. Yeah. He can breathe outside water. Yeah. <laughs> there was sort of like an inside joke where the character was actually sort of, um, it was referred to like on the call, she was like Charlie. <laughs> so they, 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 called it, they called him Charlie. And like the process that he went through to sort of discover the character and sort of gets to the character is fucking mm. fascinating. So he said in an interview, the twist on this one was that Guillermo del Toro wanted me to be more of an animal from the wild. He wanted me to be believable, but that they actually captured me in the river, you know, with a net and brought me back onto the boat. So that meant I had to quiet all of my human instincts to nod a certain way or gesture with my hand a certain way. All non-verbal dialogue because my character didn't speak a word. So Guillermo just gives me these bullet points and I go home and work on those. One of those was heroic, because the locals in the Amazon, it's referred to in the script of the movie, that the locals worship me as a god. So he wanted me to have like a posture and a stance and a presence that would warrant that kind of force. And that last bullet point he gave me, he said, and Dougie, throw in a little bit of matador. I knew exactly what he meant, because if you watch a toreador when they're facing off with a bull, it's very choreographed and very sexy and confident. Mm. They lead with the pelvis. <laughs> and when you watch this movie, he does do a lot of leading with the pelvis yeah not openly like like thrusting no but like the way the um but the way that the amphibian man carries himself yeah it's not shoulders first yeah it's from the it's from the mid yeah <laughs> yeah it's very much from the mid as i say other characters in the film we have um eliza's neighbor giles a closeted gay man who is essentially eliza's one of eliza's very few sort of friends mm. Eliza doesn't really have much of a life outside of the home. Eliza works in a government facility um, as essentially a janitor. Uh, the only people she seems to actually talk to in any capacity are um, Zelda, played by Octavia Spencer, her colleague, and Giles, who is, as I say, her neighbour. Now, I should mention, Eliza is mute. Yeah. Eliza is mute. So when I say talk, I obviously refer to American Sign Language. Yeah. The film is set in Baltimore in 1962. Um, as Eliza works at a, a um, secret government facility uh, where obviously all kinds of weird clandestine nonsense occurs. So, But she is literally just the help. Yeah. Well. She's just the help. She communicates with Zelda and Giles entirely through American Sign Language. Richard Jenkins, his character is closeted to the nth degree. He's He lives a very lonely life. Yeah. He used to have some sort of job in advertising, but for whatever reason, it's sort of implied that it's sort of implied that it's something to do with his sexuality is the reason he doesn't have a job anymore. Oh, really? I took it as, like, he's um, basically, like, the, the business is kind of moving that as well. ahead of him. Because yeah. he's a painter. Yeah. And they're, like, but photos, though. Mm. <laughs> we can use photos now. I could look at this. So I thought, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if the former were the reason, but I yeah. felt like it was also heavily influenced by... The latter. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I think the two things in tandem probably yeah. compounded on each other. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, Octavia Spencer, she plays Zelda, Eliza's um, colleague at the government facility. So she's got a story about getting cast in the movie. So she said, It's funny because my agent told me that I'd be meeting with Guillermo and it was supposed to be a 30-minute coffee at breakfast and when I met him it turned into a three-hour odyssey. We had this conversation about everything in the last five minutes when he was paying a cheque. That's when he told me about the movie. That he had written this part for me and he wasn't going to tell me anything about it. He wanted me to read it and tell him what I thought. And I think the script changed a little bit from what I originally read. It changed, I wouldn't say considerably, but Zelda was pretty much the same. And there were things that we did in rehearsal that he would incorporate into the script, but it was pretty much there when I read it. Hmm. So I, you can just imagine going, you were supposed to have a 30 minute meeting. You've been in that situation. Yeah. You, ha you say you're going to go have a meeting with someone about mm -hmm. something and it turns into something completely different. Yeah. I imagine that's what his process in general is probably like with everyone to some extent. 
Like, I, I don't... And I've got a little bit of stuff about the production design of this movie later. Like, I very much get the impression that Guillermo del Toro, on every single one of his movies, doesn't, like... He's not one of these people that, you know, directs the actors and then just just doesn't even think about, like, say, the visual palette. Mm. This guy is involved on, like, every level. Yeah. <laughs> like, properly involved. Not just, like, oh, you know, here's a couple of colour palette. Here's a couple of colours. Pick the one you like. He'll be sitting there, like, involved. Yeah. He puts all of himself into these fucking movies. He puts all of himself, including, like, his own money and shit. Which is, yeah. We'll move on. We'll move further. The antagonist of this movie, apart from being, you know, just potentially America in general, you could argue, is the antagonist for this mm. movie. There's a bit of stuff that I'll talk about later with um, the sort of context and the framing and the themes, as it were. But the the actual physical antagonist on screen is played by he of the angriest resting face in Hollywood. <laughs> and personally, if he's in a movie... I'm seeing it. It's Michael Shannon. Yeah, and he's been a real Michael Shannon. <laughs> he's been a real Michael Shannon in this movie. He is perfectly cast as the film's yes. sort of main shit house, uh, Colonel Strickland, who is the person who has captured this amphibian man and brought him to the facility for various experiments and w- other government BS, mm. as it were. <laughs> he is very much. It's interesting because Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon said this in an interview with RogerEbert.com. He said, it all started with Guillermo. Guillermo wanted to capture the quintessential 1960s uptight American dude working for the government who really believes in the cause, wants the boss to like him, wants the best car and the nicest house and the greenest lawn. He just wants it so bad, you know, because it was providing this false sense of security and safety and strength and how that ultimately was just hollow, how hollow that actually was. And that Strickland was the archetype of that, the American anxiety. On the surface, I guess when you're watching the movie, it's easy to notice that Strickland can be capable of cruelty or whatnot, but Guillermo always couched it in a more complicated scenario. Hmm. Strickland is, like, Strickland's character is just so, oh man, he's both, he, he has like he has a scene of dialogue where he goes to the bathroom, Eliza and Zelda are cleaning the bathroom, and he has a scene of dialogue where like he washes his hands, uses the urinal, and finish, and then doesn't wash his hands afterwards. He then explains that real men either wash their hands before or after they take care of their needs. Doing both shows a like defect in character. It's very, very unsettling. He's also he refers a lot to the story of Samson. Yes. He's, he talks about the story of Samson and the villas done a lot. Mm. Like he, you know, he he. He is a he is a proper like people pleaser suck up as well. Yeah, he's like I'll go into more stuff in a bit, but like he, oh, he's a, he's just he is just a gross man in many he's ways. Real gross, though. Yeah, he's really quite gross. He also gets really into the color teal. He, he gets convinced into the color teal. Yes. Oh yeah, and then he really buys into it. But yeah, <laughs> you also have um, a very interesting part um, of one of the scientists, Doctor Hofstetter, who's played by Michael Stuhlberg. Hmm. Um, He's sort of living like a double life. Yes. I don't want to spoil too much, but he's essentially living two very different identities. And he, you know, what I'm trying to say is, I personally think a lot of this movie and a lot of the context and a lot of the thing, it's about acceptance. It's about being loved for who you are. Mm. It's about you being, I don't want to say it's about you being enough, because then I just sound like a fucking positivity influencer. Yeah. But I feel like it's like about outsiders finding each other, you know, mm. like outsiders in the sense of not fitting neatly into this category of like what the time and society is like. This yeah. is the acceptable way of being. Yeah, because the main kind of characters essentially all do fall outside. Yeah, what would be considered, I suppose, the Michael Shannon ideal. Yeah, like they, he's the yeah. thing that does fit in the box. Yes. Yeah. And everyone else doesn't. And everyone else doesn't, yeah. yeah. Eliza is a mute orphan. <laughs> Eliza, yeah. She's a mute orphan who lives above this sort of, like, crumbling cinema next to a closeted homosexual in the 1960s. Mm. Um, her only other sort of friend is a black woman in the 1960s, like, in 1962. Yeah. Um, you know, the only other person... Yeah, like, I'm going to move slightly ahead, so I'm mm-hmm. getting a little bit... If I sound a little bit scatterbrained this episode, 
I apologise. I just get very emotional thinking about this movie. So I do apologise if I seem a little bit less composed than I usually do. Um, all right, let's fucking talk about it. Sally Hawkins. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, here we fucking go. So, as I mentioned earlier, her character is mute. And when we first see her, when we first see her, we see she's also a creature, a, a person of routine. Mm. She has a very... She has a very interesting routine in that, you know, she'll wake up, she'll um, boil some eggs, you know, she'll boil some eggs, turn the timer, jump in the bath, explore herself <laughs> during this period, and then, you know, pack the lunch or whatever, and then head off to the delightful government facility to do some sweet, sweet cleaning. It's just really, you know, the opening sort of five minutes of this movie are like this gorgeous... Like I, you could just watch that as a short on its own. Mm. Like I, you could watch that as a short on its own and be entertained. You know, it can end. Uh, you know, when she's on the bus and she sort of leans ahead. Basically, as soon as uh, pretty much, you could end it at the moment she pulls up to a job. You could end it there and just have it as like a a short. You don't even have to necessarily, you know, mention that Eliza's a mute. That the, the it's one of those sequences where the music, the visuals, everything complements each other so well. I'm a huge fan of the production design of this movie, as I say. The film kind of looks... It's very green, but it's very green. Like, the colour palette and the sort of... The frame... Um, not the framing, but the visual... Sort of visual palette, that's what I meant. So the visual yeah. palette is very, very green. That's sort of the main... Uh, you see some films where it's very, like, light, like cyan. Mm. There's, like, a yeah. sort of filter that's, like, cyan and orange. It, this might sound a bit technical, and I do apologise if I'm sort of losing you a bit, but basically, when you, like, when you watch this film... That is sort of the base colour for a lot of the outfits, the um, even her apartment, Eliza's apartment. This, you know, it has this sort of green tint. Like everything has this sort of green tint to it because obviously, the film is called The Shape of Water. That's the colour you want to evoke. So that like, you have lots of like green. There is so much green in this movie. The way she just goes about her day, she delivers a sandwich to Giles. She, like. Giles is um, also just obsessed with like old movies and old musicals and stuff. Yeah. He's very into that sort of canon. Yeah, golden age of Hollywood yeah. stuff. Yeah, very, very into that. Eliza clearly enjoys it as well. Like, you know, it, like yeah, speaking of greens, like there's a there's a sequence where Giles regularly, um, well, Giles regularly tends to sort of pie shop because he's sort of in love with the proprietor slash like main waiter or something. He's hopelessly in love with this man. And he deliberately gets a key lime pie, even though he doesn't actually like key lime pie. So you see the shot of all these like key lime pies in the fridge. What colour? They're all fucking green. Mm. Like the only time, yeah, the only place you don't really see much green is Giles's apartment. That's more brown. It's yeah, more like warm browns. But um, yeah, watery, murky greens. Like when you see the government facilities, really like fucking up. Like it literally feels like someone has just got a big green sort of like thing, just put it over the lens. Yeah, it's so so green. Even when Michael Shannon gets his teal car the colour of the future I, I just but yeah what I was I was, was going to say it looks like the game Bioshock which is underwater isn't it yes yeah I remember it, it, it's, it's very strange <laughs> uh, I would bring this up because like like in terms of what they actually are as like stories they're nothing alike mm. but if you've played Bioshock it's sort of lo- like a lot of this sort of aesthetic is quite similar I mean the it's much more charming and much nicer it doesn't have any like horrible fucking things happening to little kids and you don't have to like harvest the Adam from the children all that sort of horrible stuff none of that but it, it feels like that had a small influence it does it mm. really does and also you don't have to worry about any characters that are basically just Ayn Rand knockoffs or any character like yeah but we'll talk about Bioshock another time at some point I almost certainly think we will but yeah, that opening sequence, absolutely gorgeous. Um, Sally Hawkins is not a mute. Mm. Like, she's very much not a mute. Um, even though she herself, like all the people that work with her, like when you hear in an interview, she is clearly like a bit shy. She's clearly yeah, quite sure. reserved. But put it this way, right? She's so good that she managed to make a like segment you know, like those sh- on late night shows where they have like segments based yeah. on like. So there's a James Corden one, and he wears this ridiculous costume to sort of look like a fish man. Uh, yeah, they go on a day. De- oh, it's fucking horrible. Even then, 
she manages to sell it. Mm. She's that good. She is that fucking good. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting so distracted because I just love this fucking movie so much. Yes, so, the I want to focus on a couple of key scenes just to really highlight this. There is a scene, I think it's most people have seen the movie, where she is she has decided she wants to break the amphibian man out of the facility. There have been many scenes of them sort of slowly falling in love bit by bit. When she first encounters him, she's fascinated by it. And, you know, she ran, she starts bringing him eggs. Mm. There's a lot of eggs. A lot of eggs. Doug Jones eats a lot of eggs in this movie. <laughs> There's a lot of, can I offer you an egg in this trying yeah. time? <laughs> um, and there's a scene where she resolves that she knows that that Strickland has been told to kill the amphibian man just to kill him off and she goes to Giles and tries to convince him to help her save him and that scene that performance I know they um, Richard Jenkins and Sally Holmes rehearsed that on their own for like weeks just mm. on their own um, in between other things they just rehearse that constantly on their own that scene is the heart of the movie mm. for me that, that that scene is literally the heart of the fucking movie um, and there's a moment where she because how how we because in, interestingly it's not subtitled no that would, that that's something that I think I think it's a really good stylistic choice and also I think it increases the emotional engagement like her dialogue is not subtitled how this works is she gets Giles to basically say out loud what she's saying so that she knows that he's understanding it. Yeah. Because obviously he obviously he is fully aware of ASL. He really he'd have to be otherwise how would they even know each other? But she like the desperation, the desperation in her eyes, in her movements, like there's a moment where he, she says. And I'm, I remember just bawling my eyes out of this. When he looks at me, the way he looks at me, he doesn't know what I lack, how I am incomplete. He sees me for what I am, as I am. He's happy to see me every time, every day. That fucking broke me the first mm. time I saw this movie. Like, it broke me because I think we all want that. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I, th- I think, like, it sums up like everything that everybody could ever want mm. like that's what regardless of your gender expression whether you know you could change obviously you could change the pronouns if you wanted like I, I it wouldn't surprise me if people have used this in like wedding speeches and stuff or like wedding vows sorry because that's it's I because I, I knew because I when this film came out we were a thing yes we were a thing yeah, yeah. and I can't lie. Yes, I did think of you. When oh, oh yes. yes, that's sweet. Oh yeah, and the most recent time I saw this film, which is very recently, too, all I could think, like, I literally was, I had to stop myself just turning around to you and just start crying. Oh, and you know, and Giles is like, this is ridiculous. He's a bloody fish man. What are you talking about? He's not even human. He's <laughs> not even human. It's goddamn fish man because he's never, he's never seen it because he obviously no, doesn't yeah. work at the facility. So he's, he has no fucking idea what it looks like what it sounds like what it does as far as he's concerned she's just a bit mad yeah like she's just a bit off a rocker but like so he walks out because he's got to go and do like he's trying to get a job in advertising and he's, he's basically got like a job interview and she like there's a scene where well not a scene there's a moment sorry it's part of the same scene sorry there's a moment there's this one quiet moment of just like he's walking off and obviously she can't shout for his attention so to get his attention she has to like smack the wall there's these tiny little movements in Sally Hawkins's body language really like difficult to spot if you're not necessarily looking for it but like it's like she's conveying she doesn't want to smack the wall she's worried she might hurt herself a little bit mm. she's, there's this tiny tiny hint of it and that is so powerful because when she does hit that wall, you, your fucking heart breaks. Your fucking heart just like you can. It's like Ralph Wiggum, like Ralph Wiggum yeah. levels of heartbreak. Look, Lise, this you can pause at the exact moment where his heart snaps into. Like, yes, it's you know. She says if, if we don't help him, we're not human. It's just oh my god, oh my god. Like she, at one point, she just straight up like hits Giles, just straight up hits him. That was not in rehearsals. 
there's like there's there's a bit in the take that he's using the film that just straight up they didn't even rehearse mm. like that she gets so into she is just she's fucking mesmerising in this she's fucking mesmerising and that that scene I could watch that scene like I could spend days just I'm in awe of that fucking scene I'm in awe of this movie I'm in awe of that scene it's just fucking perfect I, I am getting quite like I, obviously this is not a visual medium what you are listening to us on but I'm getting very I'm, I can feel the tears coming like can I actually feel them coming I don't I, okay <laughs> right I'm going to move a little bit away from South Winter for a bit I'm going to talk about Doug Jones mm. holy shit Doug fucking Jones man like in the hands of a lesser filmmaker in the hands of a lesser filmmaker this well the amphibian man probably would have been entirely CGI'd yeah Guillermo del Toro does not play with that when it comes to this sort of thing that is a bloke in a fish suit yeah that is like they spent like years just coming up with the fucking fish suit design because obviously like shockingly enough if you're aware of the film Creature from the Black Lagoon you can probably tell that was a huge inspiration for yes, this very similar Guillermo del Toro actually describes it as like a home invasion movie because as far as he's concerned all the people invading the creature of the Black Lagoon's home fair <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah we've talked a little bit about Doug Jones sort of like movement but there's a piece there's a piece that was done in the LA Times and I would just want to just add further context for how they built the relationship between the two characters in Hawkins and Jones Del Toro found two sensitive souls perfectly attuned to their outsider characters wordless longings Hawkins couldn't speak Jones was encased in a creature suit so tight he needed three people to help him squeeze into it. There were also times where he couldn't even see Hawkins as the eyes in the mask were painted over, filled in later, digitally. To make it work, they took dance lessons, learning each other's body movements as well as establishing a foundation of trust. They laughed and cried, shared secrets about their insecurities so that when the time came to portray characters who not only fall in love but save each other's lives, they were ready. Doug Jones actually said also, I was scared. I think we were both scared. Before almost every take, we hold each other, caress each other's faces, say, I love you, I'm so glad you're here. Mm. So the relationship between them is clearly incredibly tender, and that's not even when you're talking about the characters. Yeah. But it definitely fucking pays off on the screen. It does, yeah. And the dance lessons, obviously, even if they weren't doing it for any other reason, there is a dance sequence involving the two characters. There is a genuinely beautiful moment of... Like, it's the sort of thing that, without context, looks hilarious. Without context, it's like this deranged fantasy. But in context, is really sad and beautiful. Mm. I am going to talk about it a bit, because that bit is amazing. There's also... Um, I also I just want to mention the amount of nonsense that Doug Jones has to go through to do these fucking movies, right? So, there was this... I was reading, and, like, there was this sort of thing where they he had to be like because of the way that they were trying to portray the amphibian man like certain parts of the of the amphibian man had to be like shall we say conventionally attractive okay so for example the lips and the most interesting one i was reading was the butt (laughs) like the butt had to be for essentially um i'm not saying that amphibian man got back (laughs) but it turns out that like, like it was described Doug Jones described like they're on set like Octavia Spencer would just look around like mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how he knew it was a good ass now I never like the next time I watch this film am I going to be staring at Doug Jones's ass the whole time quite possibly you gotta, well, now you've got to see the, the truth yeah <laughs> that's funny <laughs> but like he would often because there basically there was no like back pass back flap as it were to you know pull down and just like take a dump yeah, yeah. There was, like, frontage flappage. So you could, you know, if you take off the various like, hand bits, do a wee. Mm-hmm. But he would often be a little bit dehydrated because they were doing, like, obviously, long shoots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, a lot of the pieces were sort of, like, pre-made. So it only took three hours a day to get it all set up. Whereas in, like, you, you read other stuff, like, you read oh, about... Oh, like, 12 hours. Yeah, you read about, like, Rebecca yeah. and Rain Stamos on um, the first X-Men movie. And it's, like, eight, nine hours of just... Yeah, yeah. ...getting painted blue. That's just... Spending most of your day getting painted off doing yeah. a scene and being like, yeah, time to reverse this. Yeah. Oh my god. Like, <laughs> but yeah, his like everything Doug Jones does is just it's fucking incredible. Mm. Like how in the hands of a lesser director, 
even with exactly the same script and cast, in the hands of a lesser director, I really think this film would have been an absolute joke. I even with a twice, three, four times the budget. Yeah. Without, if you give this to any other director, I don't even care who you fucking send it. If you bring in Steven Spielberg to direct this script, I <laughs> guarantee you the energy will be different. different the energy will be different. It's interesting as well because I always find quite funny is that Doug Jones is like a Catholic, and yet he appears as weird creatures in he like he like he appears in these weird creatures with um, <laughs> and this like you know the leading man in as it were of this romance is a goddamn fish man. Yeah, he's a goddamn fish man that appears to have some sort of healing powers. He appears to be able to heal people with his touch. Mm-hmm. He appears to be able to like he, he straight up just devours a fucking cat. It's a river cat, you know. Yeah, cat just gets fucking munched. He also really likes eggs, and also the music of Glenn Miller. <laughs> like he's a big Glenn Miller fan. There's this really lovely sequence where um, Sally Hawkins is just repeatedly Eliza is just repeatedly bringing. Like a, like a record player in a box and putting all these like records and just you know having a little like she's sort of subtly teaching bits of sign language and like she does little she, she's like sweeping does a little dance and it's just really adorable and like oh just you gotta have a heart fucking stone not to like yeah. this movie I think but yeah um, I want to talk a little bit more I haven't really talked enough about Octavia Spencer yet she is fucking great yeah. in basically everything. Yes. Like, as well. Octavia Famously. Spencer, Octavia Spencer is great in basically Always everything. Always winning, yeah. Her character is experiencing a very different kind of love. Basically, not love. <laughs> like, yeah. her character is, is in a relationship and it's, by all accounts, pretty fucking rubbish. Yeah. Like, she... She's a man-child for her husband, yeah, basically. She, yeah, she's an emotionally repressed man-child for her husband, and she is, you know, at first, yeah, she doesn't understand the um, relationship between uh, Eliza and um, the amphibian man, but she very much comes around to it because she, obviously she wants to support her friend. Like, she she, like, she covers for Eliza. She's very, she really does get on board with it. And it's, she, like, there's a scene where they're being interrogated by um, Michael Shannon and, like... <laughs> <laughs> Eliza is um, essentially signing fuck you at him multiple mm. times and like as a marker of how Zelda is a ride or die queen um, she covers and says that she's just saying thank you mm-hmm. and and like she you know she plays a real she's like I said she's always trying to help out and, and you know, her performance is incredible winning I fuck I would have like, honestly I, I think she could have done an excellent job as Eliza herself Mm. But it's but I, what I meant to say was it's very interesting how the character who can't speak, the people speaking for her and them are from marginalised communities. Mm. The two people that basically speak for her, one of them's a black woman, one of them's a gay man. Like yeah. in nineteen sixty two, quite marginalised would be a who polite word. Sit outside the yeah. box of what's yeah. deemed like, you know, yeah. the ideal. The meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah. And, oh, um, my name's Louis, and I just quoted the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Richard Jenkins actually said something on that um, to the Gay Times. You're seeing more of the world now, a true representation of what the world is. It's really exciting, and this is a film about tolerance and acceptance. You can't control who you love. Whose right is it to tell you who you can and cannot love? Mm. He's quite correct. Just before, because I know we've been talking for a bit, I'd like to mention the production design. I've talked about it a few times. I've got a quote here from the production scientists. It's quite a long one, but yeah. Okay. I mean, Guillermo del Toro is a master of history of film. He pulled together visuals and he had some references from certain films. The arch window, for instance, was very important to him in Eliza's apartment. He showed me a still from the Red Shoes from 1948 and he wanted to incorporate that as part of this grand room of this theatre. Guillermo lives a lot of the time in Toronto, so he's written certain locations into it, one of them was this place called Massey Hall, which is a music hall, not a movie theatre. It didn't have a marquee, and we built one outside, but it had this nice little symmetrical staircase that descended from the centre, from above, that he really wanted to incorporate, so we had certain things. He had that as a notion that was a given, so that influenced the design of the interior that was studio built. We had this romantic notion of the late 19th century architecture as the environment for her and Richard Jenkins' character, and we had to decide what to do for the contrast to the Ken facility where she worked. 
there's lots of other things about um, uh, how do I put this? The color palette. I mentioned the color palette earlier. Like they, the amount of <laughs> the <laughs> where was it? Oh yes. So there were like characters. What, what I also want to say was that was it. Sorry, my brain. Just, my brain is not quite where it should be. I don't know what's wrong with me today. I think I'm just so fucking excited to talk about this movie. My brain is just short circuiting because I want to like I don't want to fuck this up. I want to do it right. I want people to like. I want anyone that's thinking this is just a film where some guy fucks a fish, right? Lol. Mm-hmm. I want every one of you to go watch this fucking movie and ball your eyes out and then tell me I'm, I was right. That's what I want. Del Toro's original sort of idea was to do this film as a black and white movie. Yeah, I can see why he would think that. And yes, there is a black and white sequence. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But they really... Like, he was sort of convinced to not do it because they offered it... Basically, Fox offered him more money to do it in colour. Mm. Like, and... Yeah. I'm glad they did do it in colour. I do think it would have been um, a very different film, black and white. Yeah. Because obviously, water is not black or white. Like, I think you would have lost a lot of the visual metaphor and the visual and the yes. interesting colour palette. Um, You've placed it more in a certain, not more, but in, in a yeah. different way in a certain time and medium. But yeah, you would have lost a lot of the suggestion of water unless they were actually in water and therefore yeah. you can see it. Yeah. Also, as part of the production design, um, Paul Osterberry, that was who I meant to say earlier, my brain, I was staring at the name, I just didn't say it. So Paul Osterberry actually also said that on the first day that they were in sort of like a, the office, like pre-production, Del Toro says, let's go through the colour books. So they had this set of like three and a half thousand colour like blocks and stuff. Yeah. And they just went through all of them. I, I can't even imagine sitting through like a little like ten colour sample of anything. So you can't imagine painting a room. <laughs> no, like I really can't. Like, cut to our futures, and I'm like this screen or this screen, and you yeah. just lose your mind at me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't care which screen, Kate. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the, like most of this film was like filmed um, in studio. There wasn't that much like location shooting. Yeah, yeah. Most of this was like soundstage. a lot of it's inside. Yeah. so that makes sense. A lot of this was soundstage. <laughs> There's. So I mentioned earlier, even down to like, um, just before I go back to the, the little dream sequence, even down to say like, so you know the um, the like the pool that he the the, the amphibian man is sort of in. Yes. So even that was like inspired by like Egyptian Mayan culture and stuff, and cultures that had pyramids and stuff. Like mm. even things that on paper you you know like you, that like it didn't need to have that level of inspirational detail. There's this. It, I'm, what I'm trying to make a point of, without going into a three-hour lecture about production design, is like every detail of this film is painstaking. Mm. Literally, every like where the chairs on the apartment, the window, like everything. That's not like a oh, we'll just put the chair in the center. Like no, 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 no. There's this is exacting. This would have been yeah. This is an exacting fucking film, and I and it shows on the screen. It absolutely shows on the screen. So I mentioned the beautiful dance sequence and it is beautiful mm. not really a big dance guy but Eliza's escapism uh, like in her mind she's singing um, you'll never know how much I miss you you know that song yeah yeah. and she does this little sort of dance in black and white with the amphibian man and you know it's her desperation to say what she desperately wants like she she obviously she can't say it mm. like and it, just for that brief moment in her mind she's free to actually express who she truly is to him and it's, oh, it's just, <sighs> yeah without context it just looks hilarious without context yeah it looks hilarious del toro even says it himself like mm. it's both the most brilliant and stupid thing in the movie <laughs> but when you've seen what you've seen you get to this point it's like you, like if you love someone, like if you have someone in your life that you mm-hmm. love, you just want to grab them at that point and like hold them very close to you, and that's I'm gonna be honest. That's how I feel about you. Oh, <laughs> See, I seem like it. <laughs> it's true. Lou is a very genuine and sweet person, and I uh, interiorly would like to think that I am, but uh, I'm too Irish to hear <laughs> nice things about myself. I, but I, I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> let's tell anyone be confused about that 
you have like a big band in the background you have mm. this sort of you have this thing that weirdly looks like again this is a bioshock thing it looks kind of like the lighthouse in the original bioshock but not in the background in like I'm not sure of the dance style. It it might be a foxtrot. I'm not sure. I'm, yeah. I'm really it, crap at... It, it's very... But it's very set in that kind of... Yeah, like, very golden age of Hollywood. What we used to call Sunday afternoon yeah. films, uh, kind of Fred and Ginger yeah. type yeah. dance sequence, which yeah. is very sweet because that's what they watch all the time on yeah. TV is those kind of movies. Yeah. So. Jar's obsessively fucking going... He going loves on. Doris Day. Yeah, he's obsessively watching that Mr. Bojangles thing. He's like, he, oh, he yeah. talks about... He analyzes... He talks about it like it's a sports thing. Yeah, like, yeah. It's interesting because the language you use is sort of what I hear people talk about when they say, "Oh man, look at that great play in the football match." It's it's yeah, it's 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 gorgeous. It's mm. it's absolutely fucking gorgeous. Again, I don't usually like films like this. That's yeah. and it just like this on paper is a movie that I would like. Yeah, it's kind of my vibe, you know. Um, but yeah, I was surprised again on paper. Yeah, that you would be into this. Yeah, but. I think I think there's something to say about like the fantasy element, like the, just the Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro of it all. I suppose yeah. is what makes it different than like a standard romance. Yeah. Not just the fantasy element, but just yeah. how he crafts films. Yeah, generally speaking. Yeah, you know, it's a romance about a mute falling in love with a fish man. Yeah, <laughs> like there's a really like the scene where she is describing to Zelda how it happens is yeah, <laughs> so sweet it should be you should be thinking oh how crude but you're just like oh it's okay because for all like i i'm not saying i'm i'm not saying it's written in the text but i think the subtext is eliza's a virgin yeah I, that is a, that's a subtext i, would agree I very much you, yeah. think that's what it is i might be wrong obviously i have happy to be stu- stand corrected on that but i yeah it's yeah and I think it was very important mm. to... Usually I wouldn't necessarily say this, but to show that she is a sexual being makes that a lot more believable that she would want that and enjoy it. Yes. Because it might seem like, why are they even showing her diddling herself at the start? Like, why, why even show that? As, well, it's because, you know, just because she's not had it with another person doesn't mean that she doesn't have those desires. Because mm. a lot of people do, yeah. funnily enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I thought, and, you know... And she's not like an innocent naive either. No, she's an adult. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't. Yeah, you know, despite the, obviously there are lots of fantasy elements in this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's still crucial that Eliza is actually a recognisable person. Yeah, and especially you know, like in a like, in a exists. world that often will, um, like desexualize anyone yeah. with disability or anything like that and she can't yeah. speak i believe it's because her vocal cords are like cut or something yes. isn't it yeah yeah like so she because she has any kind of sense of difference but you can often be infantilized yeah if you have um access needs essentially yeah so i think it's a counteracting of that too yeah to be like no no she's not a woman yeah <laughs> so i just want to conclude because we've been talking for a bit and i don't want to go on too long i don't want to go on too long I want to conclude with just a couple of a couple of quotes and a couple of little points. So I have a quote from Guillermo del Toro just about the the context, as it were. Just a bit of a further contextual quote. Mm. In 1962, everything was idealised about the future, but it was a future that never really came to be. The cars had jet fins, the kitchens are beautiful, everything is automatic, everything is modern. But in 63, Kennedy is shot and that Camelot collapses. It never really happens. Mm. So it's not a movie about 62. It's a movie that tells you that the racism, classism, sexual mores, everything that was alive in 62 is all alive now. It never went away. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do I do think, like, again, it's that kind of Guillermo del Toro level of, like, thought. Yeah. Like, depth of thought about what he's trying to say with again a romance a fantasy romance but actually yeah i think that's pretty typical of him yeah like, he, to, he to a lot surround always, yeah. his stories with these social critiques social critiques yeah. as well oh, yeah, like it's a very him thing to do yeah. but i think again that is what makes it like a romance that you and i would want to see versus yeah. like romances that by the standard of the genre are very yeah. well considered but are just not something that neither, either of us separately or together are particularly interested in yeah this is interesting yeah you know? He would go on, like, he also said, I think, there's something else he said, I'm going to leave very, very, let me leave pretty much the last thing, because I think it's just really lovely. 
Mm. I think it's really lovely. Um, so I have I have an interesting little quote from um, a lady called Alyssa Wilkinson who wrote on Vox just about the just as a little interesting little take. The movie takes its name from Plato's idea that in its purest form, water takes the shape of an icosahedron, a 20-sided polyhedron, evoking the idea that beauty and humanity has many faces. Like most fairy tales, which often involve glorious and beautiful beings who take on disguises to teach craven people a lesson, the shape of water is devoted to reminding us that everyone is beautiful, and it's those that we cravenly consider maimed and strange and frightening who will inherit the earth. Hmm. I just, um... I have to laugh. Yeah, I, I, I do as well. I um, I just wanted to put that in there because I, I, I thought it was just really interesting. Yeah. Take, far more academic than anything <laughs> that my stupid brain can come up with. Um, but a lovely summary of of what the movie gets us. Yeah, I also just want to mention something that Del Toro said as well, which I found really interesting. It's just a very small thing. To me, it was important to make it about a thing that is stronger than anything, which is water or love. The strongest element is water because it is malleable and it has no shape and love is the same. Love takes the shape it needs to take. No matter what the shape is, you fall in love madly. I do believe it. Oh, yeah. that's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> just a couple of uh, facts and figures just to sort of around this off. Sure. The film made about $195 million worldwide. Nice, big it, hit. Yeah, it won a shitload of Oscars. Well, I say shitload, it won the big one. Yeah, it won a lot of awards generally, didn't yep. it? Yes. Yeah. It won the big one. It also won Best Director, Best Original Score and Best Production Design. I know that I, I mentioned production partly yeah. because it won the award, but also I do love it. Like, I don't usually actually give that much of a shit about production design mm. films. This is it's one of the exceptions. It's a big part of this film though. Yeah. This really is one of the exceptions. But I do very much care about scores and soundtracks. Yes, yeah. And the, particularly, there's a piece, the piece at the start of the movie, um, the score is by Alexandre Desplat. I hope I'm saying that right. Mm. Desplat, well, it might be that, but the score is gorgeous. The piece at the start of the movie in particular is, it's just so, it's like being surrounded by water, but it's like, you know, like, it's very gentle. It sounds... Like uh, sounds very romantic. Sounds you know sounds like Golden Age of Hollywood at times. Yeah, but a bit weirder. <laughs> it's like yes. a bit of a weirder version of Golden Age Hollywood stuff. <laughs> Sally Hawkins was robbed. She should have won every single award that's ever happened um, because Sally Hawkins is amazing and should be in all the films. I think I managed to get through it without bursting into tears. That's all that mattered. Well done. I'm I managed proud to get of you. through like this without bursting into tears, and it's not three hours long. That I'm was the other concern. You. I was I. <laughs> Because I cut a lot of nonsense. I had a lot. I had, the amount of quotes I actually had, I cut about twenty of them, because it was just getting ridiculous. But if you haven't seen this film, like if you don't like romances, and more accurately, also if you don't like fantastical elements, because I know a lot of people who straight up fucking hate anything that is not like grounded and real. Wow, it, no magical realism for them. Nope, nope they like. Like, say, a David Lynch type thing would just upset them. Fucking, oh, I love magical realism. Yeah. <laughs> love magical realism. Like, give me some weird shit. Yeah, give me some lynching. Because I, I know people that, for example, I have a bit of a litmus test now, right? Where <laughs> in the last sort of year or so, I have a litmus test. Like, if you like the film Everything Ever All at Once, yeah. as I do, yes, yes. and you've seen it, you didn't like it, then I know that deep down we're not going to have the same sort of like tastes in general. We're just not, because. That film, to me, and I know at some point I'm going to do it on this show. Like yeah. it's going to happen. It might. I might give it a bit more time. What a perfect film. Oh, I need to give so it a bit good. more time because I think it's a little bit too recent. Yeah. I don't think I know it quite give it well enough. Further time to settle in. Yeah, I don't think I know it quite well enough to do one on it yet. But it's almost certainly going to happen in the next. If we're still doing this in three years, it'll have happened. Um, but if you don't care for a film like that, you're not going to care for a film like this. Because a film like that and a film like this ask you to accept mm. some um, interesting, I mean, int- like yeah. a different. You got to accept something that isn't in a different headspace yeah. than say like. But you need to accept it honestly and earnestly. It's not played yes. for like banter. No, it's not meta or anything. No. It is earnest and yeah. sincere, but it isn't like grounded and gritty. Yeah, but that's as I say, it's like a litmus test. So you know, if you if you're not into that, you're not gonna like this. But my point is, you should. Mm. because they're both amazing and 
I also, if you don't like romance movies, if you think they're all just overtly twee, like, oh, actually, in a lot of cases, incredibly toxic and perpetuate mm. really toxic, horrible stereotypes, what have you, I, I don't think you should watch this. I demand you watch this. If you have ever loved someone or are in love with someone, or if it's some, if it's love that's unrequited, I demand that you watch this. I implore you to see this movie. I implore you to do it. It's one of the most beautiful films I have ever seen. Mm. Like I, I, it's one of my favorites. It's it's just so warm and lovely and kind and brilliantly acted. The bastards are bastards. The lovely people are lovely. Like there is, it's it's. I don't want to say it's pure cinema because uh, what the fuck does it even mean? <laughs> if it was released in a cinema, by that logic, everything's pure cinema. But yeah, I, I there are I I'm, yeah. see, I'm, I'm usually I'm a lot better at actually explaining. It's, it's a very sweet um, fairy tale. Yeah, which it is makes a fairy tale. it which makes it sound a bit more simplistic than yeah. than it actually is. But it's just it's it's a lot of fairy tale elements while still being connected enough to like a recognizable world for us yeah um that it really hits home i think yeah and i'm going to leave it there because i don't want to i don't want to take up too much of your time are you willing to share what we're going to do on episode 56 yeah so next time i'm going to talk about damien rice's second album nine excellent thank you so much for your time everyone um we really hope you enjoyed this episode if you haven't seen the movie the easiest place to see it if you have disney plus it's there anyway Thank you very much. Every much? That's not a word. That's what? Uh, I would cut that, but I think it's funny to leave it in. Thank you very much, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. You were listening to the Darling Why podcast presented by Louis Tangarides and Kate Stewart. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to give us a follow at Darling Why Podcast on Instagram. Feel free to rate and subscribe on whatever podcast feed you're listening to. This podcast is produced, edited and put together entirely by Louis Tangridis and Kate Stewart. Thanks for listening. See you next time.